welcome to the Faith for All podcast. This week, we will be looking at a sermon by Pastor Dana O'Brien on the book of Jonah. We hope you find meaning in this message. All right, now, the, uh, the readings are going to be right in the middle of the sermon. So if you want to get ready, we're going to be reading from the book of Jonah again. And so, again, if you're in the red book, um, I'll give you a clue. We're going to start at page 1442. If you are in any other Bible, it's up to you to find Jonah on your own. He's one of the minor prophets. You can do this. It took me the entire song for, I, for me to find it. So, all right. Now, many of you guys know that before I was a pastor, I was a corporate attorney in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Now, attorneys, I know you find this surprising, but attorneys are known to enjoy golf. It's kind of one of those urban legends like, like policemen like donuts. And so the guys I worked with, and when I started working, it was all guys, um, they really loved to golf. I mean, they really, really loved it, and they were good. So I found myself playing a fair amount. You know, there were team building events, client events, charity outings, all kinds of stuff, which meant that I had the privilege of playing some of the worst golf ever on some of the best golf courses in Wisconsin, okay? I was pretty bad. I was, okay, I was awful. I was awful. So there was one golf term that became really, really important to me. I really, I really took it in. And it was, it was the word mulligan, okay? The word mulligan. It's when your shot is so bad, so bad, that your playing partners, out of pity for you, allow you a do-over, okay? They allow you to replay your prior shot without giving you a penalty. And so at Quarles and Brady, I was like the queen of mulligans, okay? So today, we find out that, that mulligans are, have, have much more application than just in the Old Testament. Um, their mulligans are for everybody. And so most people could actually use a mulligan, a, a do-over, a fresh start, a second chance. And, and every once in a while, we're going to learn, even an Old Testament prophet could use a mulligan. Okay? So thank God. Thank God that that's exactly the kind of God we have, a God of grace who gives us all mulligans, who gives us all second chances. So today, we're going to look at chapters 2 and 3 in the book of Jonah. But before we start, we're going to, just to help, I mean, I don't know about you, but I have a hard time remembering what I did yesterday, much less a whole week ago. So we're going to just remind ourselves of what happened last week, okay? So last Sunday, we introduced the book, and we noted that while some people read this book as a history book, this sermon series is going to follow the lead of Jewish scholars and present Jonah as a, as a satire or a parable, okay? A story that uses hyperbole and humor and lots of unexpected twists and turns to teach us some important truths about ourselves and about God. And I don't know about you, but if you, I'm sure you've noticed this. Um, sometimes it's easier to hear hard truths about yourself or to share hard truths with somebody else if you do it with humor, okay? And so that's what's happening in this book. So last week, we met this prophet called Jonah. And God calls Jonah to proclaim judgment against Nineveh. And Nineveh, a real city, um, it's now in Mosul in Iran. It's the capital, was the capital city of Assyria, which happened to be Israel's arch enemy and had a reputation for being really evil and vicious and brutal, okay? Now, Jonah's a prophet. So one might expect Jonah to obey God and to head on over to Nineveh to do what God, what God told him to do. That's not what happens. That's not what happens. Instead, unlike every other Old Testament prophet, Jonah ignores God's call. 
He tries to run from God by getting on a ship going in the exact opposite direction from the way he's supposed to go, okay? God is going to have none of it. He doesn't let Jonah get away. And so in the midst of this terrible storm, Jonah, knowing that it was his disobedience that caused the storm, tells the sailors to throw him overboard in order to save the ship. So over he goes. And of course, in the middle of the storm, Jonah would have died in a matter of minutes except... Except, and you know what's coming, you know what's coming, yep. God sends a huge fish to swallow Jonah and save him from certain death. So this morning, we find ourselves at the beginning of chapter 2, with Jonah sitting in the belly of a large fish where he's been for three days and three nights. Last week, we saw that Jonah wouldn't pray to God in the midst of the storm. Remember, all the other sailors were praying, but Jonah was down in the hold of the ship, not doing squat except sleeping. But it turns out that after sitting in the belly of a fish for three days, he apparently decides that this might be an opportune moment to pray. So he prays what's in chapter 2 of Jonah. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of dread, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I've been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. See, he's very colorful. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord, my God brought my life up out of the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah out onto the dry land. So, Jonah's prayer after his near-death experience is a psalm of thanksgiving, right? And you could, you could tell that. There was thanksgiving all over the place. He expressed his gratitude for God's deliverance. And it ends with this really, really profound recognition of God's saving power. Salvation is from the Lord. And of course, immediately thereafter, God gives a very dramatic demonstration of what salvation looks like by talking to the fish, who then completes Jonah's rescue by vomiting him out onto the beach. And so last week... Our Sunday school kids um, looked at the topic of Jonah, and so they made this really cool craft. Here's Jonah. He gets eaten by the fish, and you can do it. I, I was originally doing it very nicely. Jonah's in, Jonah's out. But Bonnie, our Sunday school teacher, told me that you really need to, you really need to you know, put some arm into it. Oops, wait, 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 let me try it again. Okay, <laughs> I, I actually practiced this beforehand, you wouldn't guess it. Um, so Jonah really goes flying out of the fish, sort of like a projectile vomiting kind of thing. So anyway, um, so anyway, we're back, back to, he goes flying. So Jonah's prayer is fully answered. First the fish swallows him to save him from drowning, and then it spits him out onto the beach. But here's the thing, okay, and if you listen carefully to that, that prayer, you might not have heard this. Given Jonah's disobedience in chapter 1, you'd think Jonah's prayer would also include some sort of repentance, some sort of an I'm sorry kind of thing. 
There's not a whole lot of that in there, okay? Although Jonah thanks God for not abandoning him and he promises to obey God in the future, he never says. He never says he's sorry for what he's done. It turns out it doesn't matter. God rescues Jonah anyway. And that tells us something really, really important about God. It tells us something really amazing about God. And we've seen it actually a couple of times already in the story. Despite Jonah's continued disobedience, despite, despite all the, this Jonah thumbing his nose at God, over and over and over again, God steps in to rescue Jonah. Not, and here's the thing, not because Jonah deserves it, but because of who God is. Because of who God is. It turns out, you guys, we have a God of love, a God of grace, a God who extends mercy to the undeserving. And so even though Jonah thumbs is known at God, even though Jonah runs away, even though Jonah never repents, God still doesn't give up on him. Instead, God uses the fish to save Jonah, and then God, and then God does something even more surprising. God commissions Jonah a second time, a second time. So not only does God forgive Jonah for his earlier failures, but God trusts Jonah enough to call him again. You know, we talk about forgiveness, and we sometimes say, you forgive somebody for, for the, the bad things that they've done to us, but that doesn't mean you need to trust them and bring them back into your life again and trust them again, because they might do it again. So you can forgive, but you cannot not trust and reconcile. God does more than forgive. He gives Jonah another assignment. And so we read in chapter 3, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. So Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord, and he went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. So Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And the Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed in all of them, from the greatest to the least, Put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued to all of Nineveh. By decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds, or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, God relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. So, notice that God's words at the beginning of chapter 3 are almost exactly the same words that he had at the beginning of chapter 1. Despite Jonah's complete failure to complete his assignment the first time around, God gives him a second chance. God gives him a second chance and again directs him to go and preach to the people of Nineveh. And this time, unlike the first time, Jonah goes. But, but he goes reluctantly and he carries out his assignment with little enthusiasm. You might not have noticed this, but he only goes partway into the huge city, and he delivers a message that comprises just five words in Hebrew. It's eight in English, but it's five words in Hebrew. Forty days more, and Nineveh will be overthrown. He fails to mention why. 
He fails to mention what, if anything, the Ninevites can do about this. He doesn't even mention God. Did you notice that? He doesn't even mention God in this short missive. But despite his lack of effort, and in the face of every possible reason why this should not work, Jonah's message is amazingly effective. Amazingly. The entire city, hundreds of thousands of people repent. They turn, all of Nineveh turns from its violent and evil ways. And when news reaches the king, he demonstrates his remorse by taking off his robes and putting on sackcloth and sitting down in ashes, okay? And that's how you, how you evidence remorse and, and uh, humility. Indeed, and this is, you guys, this is funny. You should be laughing, okay? The, the Ninevites, including all the animals, okay? All the animals, they fast and they put on sackcloth. Think of burlap bags here, okay? Those things that you use in those races when you're jumping around, okay? They put on these burlap bags to evidence the sincerity of their repentance, okay? And if you, if you, guys, if you don't think this is funny, you're missing something. This is such an over-the-top response to Jonah's five-word message. You've got to picture hundreds of thousands of people and goats and cows and horses and dogs all wearing burlap sacks. That should be a funny image, right? That's a cartoon picture. But not only is this funny, it's the second time in the story that the pagan outsiders show themselves to be more responsive to God than God's own prophet. There's a whole bunch of irony going on in here. People are doing things that they're not expected to do. The good guys, the people we expect to be the good guys who follow God, are rebelling and, and ignoring God. And the people you never expect, the evil, nasty, brutal Ninevites, are repenting. Another amazing thing. The Ninevites' repentance occurs even though there's no certainty that it's going to make a difference. They have no clue as to whether God is going to change God's mind, right? But God does reconsider. And at the end of chapter 3, God sees the repentance of the Ninevites. He sees it sincere. He sees it's genuine. And God does not bring about the destruction that God had threatened. So what do these three chapters now of Jonah teach us about ourselves? And more importantly, what do they teach us about God? First, as I mentioned earlier, we have a God of second chances, right? A God of second chances. A God of love who not only never gives up on us, but continues to pursue us despite our past mistakes, despite our past failures. And we know this, okay? We know this. God continually uses broken people. God continually gives second chances to people so that he can use them in God's redemptive mission. Remember a couple years ago, and not all of you were here, but a couple years ago we looked at the story, this book, and we, we looked at the entire Old and New Testament, and we saw these broken and nasty and rotten people that God used for God's purposes, right? Okay, we got Jacob, a liar and a thief who became one of the patriarchs of the Jewish faith. We got Moses, a murderer who God chooses to lead his people out of Egypt. We've got David, who despite his adultery and then murder, is known as a man of God's own heart. We've got Peter, and take it to the New Testament, Peter, who three times denies Jesus when he really could use, could use a friend but then Jesus builds his church on this man. We've got Paul, who initially persecuted the church until God turned him around and sent him out as the apostle to the Gentiles. You guys, our God is a God of second chances, and God is prepared to give each and every one of us second, third, and fourth, and fifth, the 999 chances, how many ever it takes to get us back and get us on God's page. God's willingness to extend second chances is part and parcel of the grace, the grace that God lavishes on all of us. And again, remember last spring, we, talked, we spent about five weeks talking about God's amazing grace. We defined it as that unearned, 
unmerited and undeserved favor that God extends to each and every one of us. It's God's, it's God's unconditional love. It's God, it's God knowing our weaknesses and imperfections and loving us despite them. You don't find this in people, people. It's only in God. It's God forgiving and extending mercy to us when we know we don't deserve it. It's the way God expresses God's mind-blowing love for each of us. Instead, instead of getting what we deserve, God gives us what a God of love knows that we need. God gives us what leads to abundant life. God gives us grace. And the key, the key to remember this, and I alluded to it earlier, and it's what we saw play throughout these first three chapters of Jonah, grace is all about God. Grace is all about God. It has nothing to do with us, okay? It, not, not who we are, not what we do, not how good we are, nothing. Instead, grace, like love, is the very nature, the very essence of who God is. It's, it's sort of like God can't help himself. Remember there's that, that parable about the sower where the, the sower throws all seeds all over the place. They, the, the sower throws them on the good soil, but he also throws them on the paths, and he throws them upon the weeds. God just throwing, so, throwing seeds all over the place. That is God. Those seeds are grace. God is throwing grace all over the place, all over the place. And because... Because it's up to God and not up to us, it means that whatever we are, whatever we've done, we are never too far away or too far down to be, to, to be not the objects of God's grace. Okay? Now, that's what we see in the first three chapters of Jonah, right? A God who doesn't let go of Jonah, who chases him with grace, who rescues him when he doesn't deserve it, and trusts him despite his many failures. God's relationship with Jonah, as it is with all of us, it's all about grace. Grace. And then in chapter 3, we see that God's grace is not just limited to insiders. It's not just limited to the people of God. God's grace touches everyone. God's grace touches everyone, even people like the really rotten Ninevites, enemies of the Israelites, known for their violence, their barbaric ways. I just said it. No one is ever too far away or too down and out to be the object of God's grace. One commentator noted, if the really, really, really wicked Ninevites can repent and be forgiven, anyone can. Anyone can. So, we've now finished chapter 3, and one might think that now that we've experienced God's grace for all people, we've learned the lessons in this book, and we're pretty much done. Maybe a short postscript in chapter 4, right? There's one more surprise to come, and it is the biggest surprise of the whole book, and maybe some of you have read ahead but if not, you don't know what's about to happen, but I'm going to tell you. Because immediately after God relents and does not bring destruction on the people of Nineveh, we learn that Jonah was furious. Jonah was furious. He lost his temper. He yelled at God, I knew it. I knew it. When I was back home, I knew this was going to happen. That's why I ran off to Tarshish. That's why I, I, I left. I knew you were sheer grace, sheer mercy, not easily angered, rich in love, and ready at the drop of the hat to turn your plans of punishment into a program of forgiveness. And that's where we begin next week. The heart, this is the heart of the book of Jonah. It's all about Jonah who loves God when God's grace is extended to him, but not so much when God's grace is extended to Jonah's enemies, okay? And once again, I suspect that we are all going to find out that we have a lot more in common with Jonah than we may wish to admit. Amen.
Oh, now you can read chapter four. We hope you enjoyed this message. This podcast has been produced by Cross of Glory Church. If you'd like more information on Cross of Glory, please visit us at crossofglory.com, where you can learn more about the church, its community involvement, and see previous services and sermons. We are also on Facebook and YouTube. Everyone, and we mean everyone, is welcome to join us at 9.30 a.m. Sunday mornings for worship on our website, Facebook, YouTube, or in person at 14719 West 163rd Street, Homer Glen, Illinois. Todd Mazera created our original music, and I'm Andrew Morin. Thank you for joining us.